You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. We'll be in 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7 this morning. So we have a good deal to cover as we continue our study of this book. But throughout all cultures, all civilizations, throughout all of history, we've seen that humanity displays an interest in the spiritual world. We consider, humanity does, the the spiritual world to be a place of untapped power, power over others, power over the world, power over the spirits. And so we see that human beings attempt to use religious rituals, magic crystals, sacred artifacts, secret rites, all as a way, as an attempt to harness spiritual power in order to bend the world to their will. Now, for many people, Christianity is alluring to them because they see it as a possible way, a particular form of religious right that I can force God to act for my benefit as I see fit. So a failing student prays in order to force divine aid to help him ace the test. An unbelieving sick person might turn to something like fasting, as a sort of last-ditch spiritual effort in order to manufacture healing. The businessman who wants this deal to close so he can get that commission check, he goes to church as an act of penance and hoping to earn God's favor to close the deal. Now, prayer is a very good thing, something all God's people are commanded to do, and it's a benefit to our souls. But many engage in these sort of spiritual practices not to submit to the God of glory, but they do them as a manipulative tactic to summon divine power for their own personal ends. Using religious practices to manipulate spiritual power has a word. It's called paganism. Paganism. And sadly, there are many people who take up the veneer of Christianity, but actually do so with pagan motives. We bark orders at God with fasting as a way to coerce God and demand him to act as we command him. We, we stay regular in our scripture reading, not because we long for communion with God, but because we hope that it will earn divine favor at the start of our day and that the Lord might then reward us with a nice, happy day without any problems. We schedule revival. We employ formulaic prayers. We create man-made practices and routines in a name-it-and-claim-it sort of way that attempts to force God to act as we desire God to act. But the Lord refuses to bring his blessing through human coercion. If we long for the blessing of the Lord's salvation, we must humbly depend and rest upon him, not arrogantly seek to manipulate him. We could sum up our text today in a single sentence. Revival comes through repentance, not manipulation. Revival comes through repentance, not manipulation. We have several chapters today that serve as a narrative unit. The bookend chapters of the section we have before us today, chapter four and chapter seven, parallel and contrast one another. That's one of the reasons why I don't want to take this big chunk all at one time. In chapter four, we see that Israel attempts to manipulate God and is defeated by the Philistines. In chapter seven, Israel is repentant in their sin, and they turn towards God, and the Lord grants them the blessing of victory over the Philistines. And in between those two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, we get an extended account, a bit of an excursus, if you will, of the Lord's victory march through enemy territory, which is absolutely hilarious, as we'll see in just a moment. 
So though, though the book has been building up so far to the ministry of Samuel, you'll notice as we prepare to walk through this text that Samuel is conspicuously absent for the next three chapters, and he doesn't show back up again until chapter 7. Now, the author does this intentionally for a few reasons. First, because he's teaching us that God's judgment always precedes his redemption. That's exactly what we will see happen in Israel. Second, we will see that Israel's spiritual need over these next few chapters, it's going to be absolute chaos in so many ways. And again, the author of Samuel is trying to help us recognize God's need for a prophet, a leader. In other words, Samuel's absence in 4, 5, and 6 points and demonstrates to why Israel needs him when he finally arrives in chapter 7. So because of the amount of scripture that we're covering today, I will have to summarize some of these sections, uh, particularly in chapter 5 and chapter 6. But in this account, we're going to see the glory of our untamed God and the proper response that we ought to have towards him. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel when the battle spread. Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before us. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Israel was being harassed by their neighbors, the Philistines. And the two prepared for battle. Israel encamped at Ebenezer. The Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the armies lined up to fight at the start of the chapter, and Israel just gets demolished. They, they, get, they get beat down. Around 4,000 casualties now, the elders of Israel try to regroup after that battle. They say, all right, we got to adjust our strategy here a little bit. That didn't go well. We need to figure out what to do. And they realize that the defeat was at the result of God's sovereign hand. Why has the Lord defeated us in battle before the Philistines? The Lord was not on their side. They recognize that. But they give the question little thought before they immediately manufacture a solution. The elders come up with a plan. They decide to get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and bring it with them into the next battle against the Philistines. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence among his people built at the instructions of the Lord to Moses. The Ark was a box laid with gold designed to be transported and enclosed with a lid that included two golden cherubims on top. Now, the ark represented God's presence among his people. It was his footstool from heaven, if you will, leading them through the wilderness. And when not traveling, the ark was to be kept within the most holy place of the tabernacle. So the ark represented not only God's presence, but God's revelation. With the ark, within the ark contained the Ten Commandments of God. So the ark represented also God's redemption, his presence, his revelation, his redemption. 
Because at the top of the ark were the cherubim, it was called the mercy seat, where on the day of atonement, blood would be placed. So the decision to bring out this Ark of the Covenant to fight the Philistines was a misguided attempt to claim Israel's old-time glory. If we just did things like we used to, then God will grant us the victory. And so the elders remembered from Joshua how pivotal the Ark was in Israel's crossing of the Jordan or in the destruction of Jericho and the shouting and how the walls came down. And so their decision to bring out the Ark was an attempt to replicate the methods of the past as a way of forcing God to act in the present crisis. Many churches make the same mistake. The pattern of the past led the elders to pragmatic arrogance. Military battles in the ancient world were considered a battle between gods. The strongest god of the nation was the victor, and he would give victory to his army and crush the other god in his army. So the weaker god would would obviously be defeated. And so with Israel getting their tail kicked in the last fight, they think that we can force the Lord to help us We can force the Lord to aid us and to be on our side by bringing the ark into the battle with us. Because surely, they thought, the Lord valued his honor enough to guarantee us a victory. There's no way that we can lose with the ark of the covenant with us. God will not let his name be shamed that way. So let's bring it in with us. Dale Ralph Davis calls this rabbit foot theology. He preached... This, when we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. And I think he's absolutely right. Israel's plan is to use the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky totem, uh, as a mechanism of religious control to force God to bring about a victorious outcome. But the Lord refuses to be used in such a way. And so they go to Shiloh, and they share their master plan for guaranteed victory, 12 steps to military victory from, from these elders here. They share them with Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two worthless sons, and as the priests who were responsible for the Ark of the Covenant of the Tabernacle, they said, oh, that sounds pretty good to us. Let's do it. And they agreed with the plan. And so they bring the Ark out of Shiloh, and they bring it into this military confrontation with the Philistines. And the Philistines, hearing that the Ark of the Covenant was in Israel's camp, they're initially filled with great fear. The Lord's reputation precedes them. They don't know anything about the Lord, thinking that Israel has many gods just like they do. We hear their confusion in their comments. But they had heard stories. They they knew, they had heard about what happened in Egypt, but they're emboldened to fight. And so the Philistines go to battle. And it's a bit of an overstatement, an understatement, excuse me, to say that it was utter disaster in the conflict. Israel was not just defeated, they were slaughtered in the battle. Her armies scattered as they fled. We're told 30,000. They go from a 4,000 casualty to a 30,000 casualty defeat. The Ark of God was captured by the Philistines. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were dead. The, The author saves that last detail of our text intentionally to tip us off in the narrative to what's actually happening here. Because after the battle like this, the news headline, if you were to, to, to look at the news ticker on your television screen the very next day, would read like this. Yahweh and his people Israel crushed by Dagon and the Philistines. Is Yahweh overhyped? Yahweh and his people, no more, right? Did, did God underperform? Did Yahweh underperform? Did he become old and weak since his days of Egypt and Joshua's conquests? And then talking heads would debate about just that. After the battle, everyone in the ancient world would know intuitively, they would have assumed that Yahweh was the loser. He lost. But here is the irony of the narrative. Israel sought to use the ark for their own purpose, but Yahweh used it to fulfill his purpose of judgment. 
the death of Hophni and Phinehas. The Lord appears to have lost to the watching world, but in fact, we know that God is sovereignly fulfilling his word, just as he said he would do. Here is the lesson for us. The Lord will gladly suffer dishonor in the eyes of the world to shatter his people's misconception of him. He is a God who will happily disappoint us in order to confront us with who he really is. He is the sovereign God who cannot be tamed, and he refuses to be reined in by the bit and bridle of human cunning. The Lord will not submit to us. We must submit to him. So the news of Israel's defeat is carried to Eli. Let's keep reading in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. We're told old Eli, the judge of Israel, the priest sat at the gate and we're told that he's quaking in his heart over this concocted plan. It worried him a bit to be bringing the ark of the covenant out of Shiloh and into the battle. Didn't worry him enough to stop it but it worried him nonetheless. And then he gets the news. The old blind man hears the report and it utterly devastates him. Israel's fled. The army's defeated. His sons are dead. And worse of all, the ark of God had been captured. And we're told that at this news, Eli topples over in shock and in horror and in grief. And he's falling from his seat at the gate and he breaks his neck, dying right then on the spot. On this tragic day, we're also told that Phineas's wife, upon hearing the news that the ark was captured, went into labor. And she names the boy Ichabod before she dies from the trauma of birth. Ichabod means, where is the glory? And in her final words, we see that Phineas's wife taught more truth than Phineas ever did with his entire life. With the ark gone, she rightly recognizes that Israel's glory has now gone into exile. There's a play on word in this text that's worth pointing out. The word for heavy, kebed, and glory, kabod, are variants of the same word. Eli didn't bring glory to God in Israel. He only brought his own heaviness, his own fatness. And his heaviness, the evidence of his corruption and consumption, now breaks the old man's neck as he falls to the ground. In final analysis of Eli... Perhaps he did some good things in Israel, but let this be an encouragement to all who are later in life. It's important to finish well. Eli is only a gloriously fat man in his final analysis. A heavy, as heavy Eli falls to the ground, the glory of the Lord departs from Israel. The, the end of chapter four ends in absolute utter tragedy and devastation. And there's a bit of a crisis here as we come to the end of this chapter and we're thinking and what, what, what is Israel going to do now after this absolutely crushing defeat? 
How are they going to get the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines who have captured and taken it? Who will deliver their God out of the hands of the Philistines? Now, as, as we find out, the Lord does not need deliverance. The Lord doesn't need his people. It's the other way around. His people need him. And as the Philistines take possession of the ark and bring it into their land, the so thought defeated God of Israel takes a victory lap into enemy territory. Due to the limitations of time, I have to summarize much of these chapters in chapters five and six. But let's read the beginning of chapter five. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it out from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. When they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not shred on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Only response to chapter five and six of Samuel is uproarious laughter. That's the response, the godly response to these sections of scripture. We ought to laugh as we sing with Israel, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Because just as Israel tried to use the Lord for their own gain, the Philistines attempt to do the same thing. They bring the, the Ark of the Covenant into Dagon's temple, their God. And they try to make Yahweh Dagon's assistant. Yahweh is your handmaiden. He's your servant. Yeah, look, at, look at what we brought you, Dagon. But the next day, early in the morning, we're told exactly what happens. They, they see that the statue of Dagon had fallen over overnight and now lays prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. And with great irony, the Philistines have to help their God get back up. Here is a God who has fallen and can't get up, right? And so the, the Philistines have to come and, and help get him back in place. And they come in the next morning, and not only had the statue of Dagon, the idol, fallen over again, but now his head and his hands were cut off. You see, Yahweh has no rivals. He cuts off the hands of Dagon as he prepares to raise his hand against the Philistines. Tell me, who is the real loser here? We read in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. And then as we continue to read in chapter 5, we see that the Philistines play a game of divine hot potato. As they pass the Ark of the Covenant from one city to the next, nobody wants the Ark of the Covenant because everywhere the Ark goes, it inflicts pestilence and plague and terror and tumor upon the Philistines. They thought they had captured Israel's God, but turns out they were the ones that were captured. Over seven months, the Lord terrorizes the Philistines, creating a panic among them and a crisis among them so that they conclude, we've got to get rid of this thing. We've got to get rid of the Ark of the Lord. So they don't want to make the same mistake as Egypt. And so they come up with a test to see if it was actually the Lord that's causing this plague or whether all of this is just a pandemic of coincidence. So they took two milk cows, they separated them from their cow, their calves, and they hitched them to a cart with the Ark of the Covenant. And along with the offerings of gold tumors and rats to appease the Lord, they set up the cart, they strapped on the cows, and they waited to see where the cows would go. Ordinarily, they, you would expect under natural circumstances, the cows would head straight to the table to go be with their calves. That's what you would expect cows to do in those situations. But there was a test to see if they would go to the calves or if the cows would start going back towards Israel with the Ark of the Covenant attached. 1 Samuel 6, verse 12 tells us what happened. You can turn there and read. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the cows, we see, make a beeline for the borders of Israel. It's a humorous image. This unmanned cart being pulled by two cows, guided by Yahweh's invisible hand, as the Ark of the Covenant rides off into the sunset of his victory out of Philistine territory. The, the Lord has no need for us to protect him. 
He doesn't need us to vindicate him. He doesn't need us to avenge him or to guard him. You can try to capture God. You can try to defeat God. You can try to make God subservient to your idols, but he will not be bound by us. He cuts off the heads of our idols and he inflicts us with the plague of his judgment. The Philistines, rather than recognizing the Lord for who he is, instead just want to be rid of him. We want you gone. We want you out of our land, out of our lives, never to plague us again. Similarly, Jesus had a very similar reaction in a town called Gerasene. After Jesus cast out the demon legion, with pigs stampeding to their deaths into the waters, the reaction of the people of that town was not humble worship of Jesus, who is the son of God and who can command demons, but the people were told were filled with great fear, begging him to depart from the region. You see, when we witness the power and the glory of who God really is, a God that is untamed, a God that we cannot control, we can have two very different reactions. We can have humble worship or fearful repulsion. When we see, like the Philistines, we, when we, we, like the Lord, recognize that the Lord won't follow our orders, we can either submit to him or we can send him away. The Philistines sent him away, but Israel is no better than the Philistines. And they share in this Philistine impulse to send God away. Look at chapter 6, verse 19. Let's read from there. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim as long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The Lord is against Philistines wherever he finds them. Even in a city of Levites. That's exactly what this city is. It's a city of Levites. This is one of the Levites cities that the Lord assigns to them. And from here, we see yet again, another hard lesson of divine judgment that comes from disobedience. The ark returns to this Levite city called Beth Shemesh on the border of Israel after exiting Philistine. And if anyone in Israel should know how to properly handle the ark of the covenant, according to the law of Moses, it should be the citizens of this city. This is a town of Levi. The Levites were the, the tribe of Levi were the ones assigned to manage the tabernacle and its furniture and the ark. And so we see in the text described here that the people utterly mishandle the ark. They set it on stones. They start looking upon the ark, perhaps indicating they're opening up the ark, looking into it. Whatever they did, the text tells us that they did everything wrong. Everything they weren't supposed to do in handling the ark, they send, showing utter irreverence to the Lord and utter disobedience to the commands of God. And so the Lord strikes them dead. The number of those who died has some translation difference, uh, difficulties, but the ESV reading, I think, is the common consensus. Seventy Israelites died right then for their offense of showing irreverence to his Ark of the Covenant. It's a reminder that whether you're Philistine or Jew, Jew or Gentile, right, the Lord is impartial in his judgments. But Israel's response mirrors the Philistines. What do they want after this? They want the Ark gone. And so they sent the ark to the house of Abinadab, where it would stay for decades until King David would bring the ark of the covenant out of obscurity into the center of Israel's national and religious identity in the city of Jerusalem. It's a reminder here for all of us that the Lord will not be controlled. We cannot manipulate him. We cannot coax him. We cannot lure him. We cannot entrap him. That those who seek to use the Lord as an instrument of their power will face his judgment. But don't so many people do that today? They act the same way. We treat God as a genie in a bottle to grant our wishes, a bodyguard to protect us, a mercenary to be hired 
for our own victory? We treat religious practices like church attendance and prayer or Bible reading as a way of seducing and manipulating and trying to get God to act as we see fit for him to act. Perhaps you came here even this morning with such motives lurking in your heart. And those who treat God in that way, God is happy to disappoint you in order to confront you with who he really is. And in the midst of that disappointment, we can have two reactions to God. We can humble ourselves before the God who cannot be tamed, or we can send him off away. And sadly, there are many, as our confession of faith says, superficial professors, people who superficially profess Jesus, who get disillusioned with God and reject God. Whether we use trendy words like ex-evangelical or the good old-fashioned term for it, apostasy, those who attempt to hogtie the Lord end up abandoning the Lord when he refuses to be bound by our preconceived notions. And those who reject the Lord will be judged by the Lord. So if the Lord can't be manipulated, or if he can't be controlled for our own ends, how then should we respond to the Lord? You see, spiritual revivals do not come by human craftsmanship or innovative strategies, but by humble prayer and repentance. That's the way we respond to the Lord. Revival begins in Israel when the prophet of God proclaims the word of God, calling the people of God to repentance. 20 years after the defeat of the Philistines and the capture of the ark, Samuel reemerges on the scene of Israel's national life again, calling the nation to repentance. Let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Revival begins with repentance. Samuel calls the people of Israel to forsake their false gods and devote themselves exclusively to the Lord. True repentance that we're talking about here is an about face. It is a turning away from sin and a turning to the Lord. In other words, being sorrowful over sin and being repentant over sin is two very different things. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. As Samuel preaches God's word, he calls the people to repentance, not to feeling bad about their sin. They've been feeling bad for 20 years. They've gotten their tail kicked by the Philistines over and over and over again. But they, hadn't, they weren't repentant. And true repentance is a grace only given by the Lord himself. Worldly grief is a natural phenomenon. Lots of people feel bad about their sin. But godly grief is supernatural, a grief that leads to true change and repentance. And what did repentance look like for Israel here in 2 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 7? You know, I, th I think we tend to misunderstand the allure of paganism that Israel faced. Come on, Israel, just pick the right team to cheer for. It's not that hard. That's kind of what we think. But, but pagan worship of gods like the Baals and the Ashtaroth combined spirituality with sensuality. They're incredibly alluring. These were fertility cults that celebrated the indulgence of human sexual desire. It was paganism combined with spirituality. Uh, excuse me, paganism, it was paganism combined with spirituality as a strip club. That's really what it was. So Samuel's call for Israel's repentance was not as simple as just changing one jersey and picking the right team, but a call to abandon brothels masquerading as sanctuaries. Samuel's call for Israel to forsake these pagan gods is a forsaking of hedonism for holiness. This is drastic, sacrificial, life-changing repentance. The national call for repentance leads to this supernatural response of repentance. Israel repents of violating the first commandment and worships the Lord their God alone. They turn away from this lifestyle of paganism and they submit themselves to the Lord and his word. The entire nation, we're told, changed drastically. And, and how do we measure whether a true revival has happened? It's an interesting question, isn't it? How would you measure 
whether a revival has really happened. It can, can't be measured by emotions or tears. It can't be measured by hands raised or cards filled out. No, revivals can only be measured by repentance. Repentance, ongoing repentance. That's why it's very difficult to assess the fruit of a revival when the revival seems to be happening. Because it's often 10 years from now that you'll actually see whether a revival has taken place, whether the repentance of God's people has continued in a mark, life marked by holiness. The Holy Spirit may work visibly and dramatically and emotionally in people's lives, but ongoing widespread repentance is the reliable sign of a true work of the Holy Spirit. In Israel, we read of a true God-wrought revival in 1 Samuel chapter 7. But the Philistine crisis from 1 Samuel 4 is still in the background here. It still remains. 20 years later, they're still in this constant war and skirmish with, with the Philistines. Israel earlier had tried to take matter into their own hands and manipulate God to bring them victory by using the Ark of the Covenant. But how will the Lord respond now that Israel has truly and humbly repented of their sins? Let's keep reading in chapter 7, verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. <coughs> And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. You see, as the nation repents, the Samuel begins to pray for the people as they fast, as they restore true and proper worship to the Lord, as they worship him alone. And at the corporate repentance of Israel, the prophet Samuel becomes God's judge and leader of the nation. And unlike Eli, who coddled Israel in their sin, Samuel calls for Israel's repentance. The leaders that we need are not those who affirm us in our sins, but those who have the courage to call us to repentance. And as Israel is gathered at Mizpah, the Philistines hear of the gathering, and this is, they decide, well, this is a perfect time to attack. All of Israel's gathered here, worshiping the Lord. Let's mount our attacks. We beat Yahweh before, we can beat him again. And so the people are afraid. But Samuel instructs the people in verse 8. Excuse me, the people instruct Samuel in verse 8. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They cry out, Samuel, mediate for us, intercede for us, plead our case before the Lord that he might save us. Now, what a change. They're humble. They're repentant. They're desperate. Israel is calling out to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? Well, he acts to save his people. The Lord, we're told, thundered against the Philistines, throwing the army in great chaos and confusion, and Israel crushed the Philistine army. This is the pattern of God's working laid out throughout all of the scriptures and laid out explicitly of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance precedes salvation. When we recognize our sin and when we behold our great need or the rebellion that we've had against the Lord, and then when we respond to that sin, not by prideful justification of ourselves, but by fleeing ourselves desperately before this holy and glorious God, we repent. We repent from our sins and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord saves. The Lord saves. The precious atonement purchased at the cross of Christ is then applied to our lives in response to our repentance and faith, and God covers our sins. He rescues us from his judgment, and he delivers us from death and hell. You see, like Israel, we cannot be helped by God 
until we realize that we are helpless. And it is by God's grace that we come to recognize our desperation. Perhaps this morning you've treated the Lord like a rabbit foot all your life. A genie that you can control by your strict religious observance. A God that you can exploit by your prayers. And you may appear to everyone around you as very religious, but your religious deeds are nothing more than a foolish attempt to manipulate God. You are just a pagan who is operating in the garb called Christianity. And perhaps the Lord has disappointed you over the course of your life, refusing to be tamed by your religious manipulation as a way of helping you recognize your sin and your helplessness. Today, I pray that the Lord, strong and mighty, knocks the head and the hands off your idols and empowers you to repentance. With empty hands and humble hearts, repent this day before the Lord and put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The Lord will not help those who arrogantly use him for their own ends. But the Lord comes to the aid of the humble. He comes to the aid of the repentant. He comes to the aid of spiritual paupers. Judgment comes upon the manipulators. But salvation comes upon the repentant. After the Lord brought salvation from the Philistines, Samuel leads the people to follow the Lord. And he commemorated the Lord's deliverance by setting up a memorial. Let's read about it in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter there the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. We sing the song. We'll sing it in just a little bit. Here I raise my Ebenezer. This is where it comes from. The Lord is a help to his people. That This event of God's deliverance, it cements Samuel's leadership as the judge of Israel. And Samuel continues to lead the people to devote themselves to the Lord, and the Lord blesses his people. Let's keep reading. In chapter, uh, verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This whole episode that we have seen from chapter four, five, six, and seven reminds us that without the Lord, we can do nothing. But the Lord comes to the aid of those who recognize their impotence, their powerlessness. You see, the Lord will not deliver the arrogant and the proud who attempt to use the Lord for their own sake. But to those who humble themselves, to those who repent, to those who call out to Jesus in faith, the Lord will save. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come and we recognize that we can be just as foolish as Israel, just as foolish as the Philistines, in thinking that you are a God who can be controlled. But Lord, we are grateful that you are God who cannot be tamed by human ingenuity and cunning. Lord, we are grateful that you do disappoint us, that you shatter the, 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 the imaginations, these fake images that we create of you. And Lord, that you shatter them so that we might know who you really are, a God who is gracious and loving and fierce and holy and abounding in steadfast love for your people. Lord, I do pray, Lord, for those who are here who may have for many years been using Christianity as a form of divine control. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would repent of their arrogance this morning, that they would humble themselves before you, humble yourselves be themselves before the word, and Lord, that they would submit to Jesus as their king. Lord, we are so grateful, Lord, that you hear the cries of the brokenhearted, that you turn your ear to those who are broken and repentant over their sin. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you might be so gracious to break off the head and the hands of our idols and help us to recognize that you alone are God. Lord, we pray that our response to you this morning would be humble submission as we turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would act. Lord, that you would bring a true revival among us, among this city, among this country, among this world, as we recognize who you really are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.